And thank you guys for loaning me Kyle for uh, eight, ten days. I know, well, I didn't have him near that long. It took a long time in an airplane to get to where we were going, but I appreciate it. He knocked it out of the park. I do hope to be able to come back sometime and tell you about how great he did because uh, I was thrilled, absolutely thrilled by the work that he was able to come and do. And I tried to use him up. I tried to send him back tired. I hope I did that because um, we went to work, didn't we? It was good. Good time. So uh, if I do good today, maybe you'll let me come back and tell you how good he did later. So if you got your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. As of October 19th of this year, Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon, had $110.1 billion. He's currently the richest man in the world. Now, wouldn't that be a crazy story if he decided to give it all away? Let's say the next day, uh, let's say tomorrow, Jeff wakes up and says, you know what, I'm going to give portion of everything that I own down to the last penny to every human being on the planet. Well, Google, as of yesterday, I don't, I don't know how they counted them, but Google said there was about 7.8 billion people on planet Earth, right? So if he was going to give away $110.1 billion, that means you and I, each of us get $14.11. That is not quite life-changing money. It is nice. I'd like to have $14.11, but it is not what we would consider life-changing. Well, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul is going to talk about this wealth that makes Jeff Be Bezos' wealth look like a child's piggy bank. And this hypothetical sacrifice that I just said that Jeff could make is going to seem small and insignificant when compared to what Paul mentions here. Paul's going to talk about something that theologians have called the condescension of Christ. And this is really, hopefully, going to prove to you what really is the light of the incarnation that we're here to celebrate. So a con condescension, unfortunately, is a term that has been ruined as time has gone forth. Now if you say somebody's being condescending, they're kind of being a jerk. Right? I'm sure there's a nicer way to say that, but that's what they're doing. They're talking down to you. They're being condescending, just kind of like me doing right now when I'm trying to explain the word when I, I know you know the word. But in times past, the word condescending or condescension actually meant um, to waive one's rights for the sake of somebody else. It's a very noble action. And to forego everything that somebody deserves for the privilege or the sake of somebody else. Now, our text this morning is kind of a strange one. If you know 2 Corinthians chapter 8, you know Paul is talking to the church at Corinth and trying to convince them to gather up a collection for the saints for another church. He says there's other people who are hurting and we should help. But in the middle of it is this little parenthesis that he kind of just mentions in passing. But he thinks that just mentioning this is enough oomph behind his argument that should, could, should convince them that they should give. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9, we'll read this. 
For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you by His poverty might become rich. Now I love that Paul talks about grace here. And I find it very interesting because if you, if you know Paul, if you read Paul, you don't read very much of Paul without running into this idea of grace. Well, it's kind of my job now to talk about missions. Everywhere I go, I have to talk about missions. It's just what I do. And it's kind of fun to not have to talk about missions. I'd love to talk about it because I love missions. But here, something Paul talks about constantly is grace. I think the point is, if you've, been, if you've experienced grace, if you really know it down deep, it's going to come up. He's going to have to talk about something that is so huge in his life. And so he says, you know this grace that we've experienced. And it's the grace of our Lord Jesus. He says, though he was rich. So my sermon today, I'm going to fail all homiletics class again. <laughs> um, every time I've taken them, it's been tough. Uh, but I'm just going to let the Scripture teach. Okay, So the text will be the actual outline of the sermon today because I want you to understand that the text, what the text is saying. And I, I just want to kind of do a guided meditation with you to help you understand maybe a little bit and to help us think through and, and to set our minds where I believe it should be during this season. So Paul says, though he was rich. So there's really a, a, several things that set our religion, our beliefs apart from other religions in the world. One, we always say we serve a risen Savior. And that is so different, right? Because who do you believe in? Oh, I believe in this guy. Yeah? What happened to him? Well, he died a long time ago, but man, he said some neat stuff. Okay. That's it? That's all you got? Right? Ours is different. We serve a risen Savior. Not only did He say some amazing things, but He came back. It's different. Another thing that makes us way different is we serve the eternal one. We don't serve man. We don't serve creation. We serve the Creator. We serve the God of the universe. And so when we talk about Jesus, we can't start thinking that He began when He was born to the Virgin Mary because He didn't. His beginning did not start in a manger in Bethlehem. He is eternal. There has never been a time when there was not a Jesus Christ the Lord. John chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 2, The same was in the beginning with God. Habakkuk 1.12 says, From everlasting you are God. He says He is the great I Am. So if we're thinking of something created, then we're not thinking of God. Because He was not created. He always has been. Yesterday, today, and forever. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 says that who being in the form of God, talking about Jesus, Jesus, who being in the form of God, meaning He is partaking of the divine nature. And in the King James it says, He thought it not robbery to be equal with God. I like the poeticness of the King James sometimes. Because frankly, I would have thought it robbery. 
if I was to make myself look like God, I would be stepping into a space that did not belong to me. I would be saying that I'm the Creator. I would be saying that I have no need. I would be saying all these types of things. But it would be robbery. It would be robbery to try to take credit that is not mine. But Jesus did not think it was robbery. He didn't feel like He was invading on any territory that was not His because He was God. An eternity passed before His trip to earth. We are told right here in uh, 2 Corinthians 8 that He was rich. Now the term rich here means, <laughs> interestingly, it means happy, prosperous, lacking nothing. There was nothing that He needed. So, let's think about he's rich in his person, in who he is. First of all, just look at his name. Psalm 148.13 says his name alone is excellent. He was God, the one and only, the most high God. Isaiah 45.22 says, for I am God and there is none else. Psalm 89.6, for who in heaven can be compared unto the Lord? That's rhetorical, right? The answer is nobody. And the scribe answering Jesus in Mark 12 says, Thou hast said the truth, for there is one God and there is none other but He. Now Jesus Christ is not the Father, but He is an equal part of the Godhead. The Shimon in Deuteronomy chapter 6 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. They are inseparable. Hebrews 1.8, God the Father says to the Son, Jesus Christ, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. He is our Emmanuel. means God with us. Not one like God, but God with us. This is a core tenet of our faith. We believe that Jesus Christ is very God of very God. And being so, He is perfect. He's rich in His person. He's perfect. He's never been bored with Himself. Don't you wish sometimes that you could just go away? My wife tells me sometimes how hard it is to live with me, and I tell her, you get to leave. I have to stay here. I'm always here. It's miserable. He never exerted any energy. Because He's God. He doesn't have to, he never loses any power when he does anything. Self contained perfection. He's never taken orders from anybody. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who could be his counselor? Nobody. He's never known need. Need is a creature word. And he, before the foundation of the world, was wholly satisfied just with himself. Just in his person, he is far richer than I could ever say. He's also rich in his position. So, can a king be a king without subjects? Like, if I was to claim, I'm the king of Magnolia, but nobody agreed with me, I'm not really the king of Magnolia. Right? Unless you're willing to start deeding me your homes and letting me pay, you know, start paying tribute to me, things like that, letting me use your children to make my own army, I'm not the king. Right? I need subjects in order to be a king. It's the difference between 
earthly kings and God because God is God with or without our permission. All authority, all power, all glory are His. He does not need us to do this. There's no danger of Jesus losing His position to anyone. There's no chance of anybody downsizing His department. He's not lacking in anything that the rest of the Godhead thought, well, they might need to bring somebody else in to take His place. He didn't go to school to learn to become God. He did not advance from another position. He didn't climb the deity ladder. He didn't have to campaign, and He was not appointed. He has God. He is always God. He didn't say He was going to be gone for 33 years. Please save my seat kind of thing. It wasn't like that. It is His forever and ever. It is His. He is always the King of all kings. And having this position does mean that there are those who worship you. The cherubim and the seraphim continually fly around getting new angles at the holiness of God. And they continually cry out, holy, holy, holy. And they're right. We try to join in as best we, we can. And we sing, how great thou art. But when you try to talk about the riches of God, words fail. He's also rich in his possessions. Psalm 89 verse 11 says, The heavens are thine, the earth also is thine. And as for the world and the fullness thereof, thou hast founded them. Every part in space is his. Every place there is a place is his. The galaxies that Hubble's have discovered, they're His, but the galaxies that Hubble has never discovered are His. The places on this earth where nobody has even thought to dig a mine, all that gold there is His. Every ounce of this celestial ball, the pearls in the ocean that no diver has found, the springs from which no creature has drank, you can fly as high as possible and it's His. You can go as low as possible, as deep as possible. It belongs to Him. There's not one square inch of any place that He cannot declare mine. I own it. He has innumerable possessions. The psalmist tries to write about it. He goes, you know, the, the cattle on a thousand hills. He's seen like eight hills. So he's thinking, in the whole world... Like, there's got to be a thousand hills. Well, the cattle on all of them are. That's what I'd say too. And you realize, oh, there's a thousand hills in Arkansas. They're all His. They're all His. Jeff Bezos. Bezos? Yeah. Who knows? He's got enough money, he should change his name to like Smith or something. Some people can say. He created Amazon. But Jesus created the Amazon. <laughs> he's not just rich in his person and his position or in his possessions, but he's rich in power. And I could talk about this forever. We know he is omnipotent. 
That means he has all power. That means no creature has ever been able to, to scoop up a little power here and say, this is mine by myself. Right? Now, he loans some power to creatures, and it's amazing, but nobody has ever been able to say, this is mine. Because then he wouldn't be all-powerful. But he has all power. So knowing that, just one idea. The power of his creation. The fact that he can speak creatio ex nihilo. Creation out of nothing. He speaks to nothing and nothing obeys him. I'll give you a minute. So, like us, you know, in our feeble little minds, we think that riches is in possessions. Well, okay, that's fine. He has all of it. And for him to get more, all he would have to say is, let there be blah. And then there's blah right there. He has that power and authority. If we go, well, gold is really important. Okay, there's more gold. This is, I mean, we're not talking about a creature here. Paul says Christ was rich. He was not poor in any sense at all. Now we try to tell of the heights of the Most High in which human words just can't do it. But it's important for for churches to try to show how high he is. Not try to lift him in place. I mean, you can't lift him higher. Sometimes we try to lift him up in, in ways that it's not true. But just to describe who he is and to place him where he really belongs is important for a couple of reasons. One, I think if we as a church begin to see Christ as supreme as he really is, then there'll be more of us who will be willing to lay down our lives and become living sacrifices to Him. I think sometimes we think, I really don't want to serve Him because in your mind, He's a small thing. And He's not small. You know, the question when it comes to situations like this, you always just want to say, in what esteem do you hold the Savior? Because no matter how high you think you've got it, you're, you're still dishonoring Him with your low thoughts of Him. We need to think higher about who Christ is. Never, ever tolerate low thoughts of Christ. A prayer that I used to pray is when I was a pastor, I used to pray that God would become in our church to us who He really is in the universe. If I could just get Him in my heart and realize who He is in the universe, my whole world's changed. Because we don't see Him as rich. So many times we see Him as just this guy that lived a long time ago. And we think He came back, but He hadn't been here in a long time. And eh. Now the story gets crazy. 
Because he says, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. The king of the universe took off his robe and he left his throne. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. The very name of God is synonymous with the word holy. We talked about the angels. <laughs> That's what they do. They just cry out, holy, holy, holy. Yet, holy God made himself human. Now, there's a lot of words to describe humans. Holy is not one of them. This thought is kind of disgusting to me. The fact that the holy God would come and walk among us to be made out of the same flesh as us. How gross. The closest I can get would be to say, let's me and you become a cockroach. Let's go hang out with cockroaches. Let's go love on cockroaches. But I'm honestly a little bit embarrassed to say it because the distance between us and cockroaches is so close, but the distance between the holy God and us is vast. This is the condescension. This is what happens at the incarnation. This is why every year we try to talk about this in ways that make sense. Because the King of glory took on flesh. John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now we talked about the angels before, so a little bit of sanctified imagination here. okay? Because the Bible doesn't tell us this. But angels were created, and so they watched how holy God create the world. And they watched um, Satan be able to gather a third of the angels and try to make war in heaven. And they came against God and came against his angels. And of course, God just said, hey, Michael, take care of this light work for me. And Satan was cast out. And they watched as God created hell for Satan and his angels, those who were rebellious. And then they saw how God said, all right, let's do this man and woman thing. And we don't know how long they were in the garden. 15 minutes, 300 years, I have no idea. Probably 15 minutes. And the angels watched them rebel. And I can just see the angels go, God, give them hell. Give them hell. That's why you created it. It's for people just like that. For those that look at your holiness and despise it, those that rebel against you and your authority, those that try to take your glory for themselves, that's what hell was created for. Give them that. I can just see them sit back like, this is going to be big. And then nothing happens. You, you, you want to? We can do it. And to hear the shock had to be. 
when God said, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do something different. I'm going to give him my son. Wait, wait a minute. So they're made lower than us. These people don't deserve that. You're telling me you, the king of glory, are going to go and become one of them? I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know what the angels thought, but I know that had to be revealed to them in a certain way, and that had to be a shock to the system. I don't know what they did, but I know they didn't let him come alone. Because when he came, they followed. And they wouldn't even leave until they sang to let everybody know glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. Goodwill toward men. To let everybody know that unto men a Savior was born. You see, the infinite had become an infant. The eternal one had entered time. Immense Deity confined Himself to space. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate Deity. This is the God-man. Fully God, fully man. Having two natures. We must be careful because it's very dangerous to try to deal with Christology. Everybody needs to study it. It's super important. But you can't take away a divine attribute because then he would cease to be God. So there's no subtraction here. This is straight addition. Christ adds to himself that which he was not. He did not lose that what he, uh, that what he was. He continued to be God, but at the same time, he began to be man. So he's omnipotent and also weak. He's all-knowing. He's omniscient. Yet, the Scripture says He increases in knowledge. <clears throat> He's infinite, yet at the same time still finite. Philippians 2.7 says, He made Himself of no reputation. He was made in the likeness of men. This means He veiled His divine attributes with flesh. He covered them up. He chose not to exercise some of those attributes. Now, the funny thing is, as good of a veil as the flesh was, there were times that it still could not totally veil the glory of the Lord. Like, have you read the Transfiguration? Peter's like, wow. Right? And you can read them and go, they're having trouble saying what happened. Why? Because God just gave them a little peek of what was behind the veil of the flesh. He had the power and the fullness of God within Himself, and yet the Scripture says He was poor. Now this word poor, the term indicates that Christ was so poor that He had to beg. It was abject poverty. That's the term. Uh, it's, the idea is almost a helplessness. So how did this pan out in His life? As a child. As a child, the Creator of the universe was born of a virgin and He had to look to this teenage girl for nourishment. 
though the earth was his footstool and he danced upon the stars, he was carried until he learned how to walk. The creator of language and the one who with his words spoke all of creation into, the, into existence had to learn how to say mama in Aramaic. The very hands that formed the woman was now wrapped in her hands as she taught him to write. Or how she held it to cross the street. Or to how to make sure that God Almighty didn't get lost in the marketplace. And the Almighty was given orders. His parents gave him chores to do. And he obeyed. Up until now, God had only obeyed Himself. And the chores that it gave Him, he, instead of just saying things, Floor be thou clean. He could have done that. No, He instead chose to work. He chose to get on His hands and knees, which by the way were new to Him too, and to scrub the floor. He had never before sweat. He had never expended any energy. But He chose to be a simple child as other children. Can you see how he became poor? You see the craziness? This is crazy. As a man, he wore the garment of the poor. As for his food, he often was hungry. This is the one that made plants and scattered the crops across the world. He had to ask a Samaritan woman for a drink and He's the one that created the oceans. His friends were drunks and whores. His condescension even took Him to the lowest center. He didn't even have a horse. Though one time He did tame a donkey for one ride into Jerusalem, but other than that, He walked everywhere He went, foot sore and calloused. The one who had been waited on by angels drops and takes a towel and he washes the disciples' feet. He said, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but I, the Son of Man, have not where to lay my head. And he didn't until on the cross he hung his head in death. Scripture gives his name as my servant. Seeing this, we will, not, will we not finally at this point begin to be a servant to the One who did all to serve us? Even taking upon Himself the iniquities of us all? Can you see the poverty of His sacrifice? Isaiah prophesied that He would be called the Man of Sorrows. Him. The source of all joy. The giver of all peace. He before whom angels and archangels bow in adoration allowed Himself to be betrayed by men. Normally, the only thing out of creatures' mouths toward Him were hallelujahs. But there they spit on Him. Can you see Him bleeding? as they tied His hands together so that they could whip Him. And they strike God. 
with a simple word from his mouth, no Roman soldier or any human being would ever think another rational thought. Just a word. But he willingly kept silent. And they mock him with a crown of thorns. They didn't know what crown he used to wear. Or the fact that he knew all the intricacies of the, of the thorns. They put a robe on him. He had been robed in righteousness, but now they allow that robe to begin to clot the blood upon his back so that they could only rip it off to cause him his wounds to be reopened. He created the little nerve in his wrist. Created it. Knowing exactly where the spike was going to go. I'd have been tempted. Oh, let's leave out that pain one right there. Let's just... Nope. It goes there. My condescension requires it. He made it feel pain anyway. And then on the cross, God turned His back on God. Who could fathom? He came to die. Die He would and die He did. His body was then begged for. And though He owned all things, they had to lay His body in a borrowed tomb. you see his condescension? You see the scandal of the incarnation? Don't, don't miss this little phrase here. For it says, yet for your sake he became poor. impossible to feel like we're worth the love of Christ. One more thing real quick before we move on. For a poor man to become rich is a great thing. But for a rich man to become poor is a horrible thing. You can have two men and both have the same amount of money in their pocket, but one's been poor his whole life and the other was rich and has now been made poor. And the, the rich man's poverty is far more wretched because he can say, I, I've seen better days. I know what's out there. Nobody had seen better days than the Most High God. He knew the smells of heaven. And he knew the songs of angels. And he realized that while he was here, he was a king without a throne. That he had been deprived of his rightful place in the hearts of men. This is the poverty that he took upon himself. And it says, 
not only for your sake did He become poor, but so that you, by His poverty, might become rich. Now I want you to understand, for your sake means for your sake. For those of you that are under the sound of my voice, let me look at you and make sure that you understand it was for your sake that He became poor. I don't know how it would be possible to understand this passage of Scripture and not let it stir you. Because the Creator of the universe, for my sake, became poor. Why? I don't know. It says that we might be rich. Now, Vast difference between Christ's riches and His condescension. Impossible to explain. And just the same, there's huge differences between our poverty without Christ and the riches we have through faith in Him. Without Christ, the Scripture says, everywhere, <laughs> the Scripture says we're sinners. But in Christ, we are now justified by His grace as a gift. Without Christ, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. But with Christ, we have been made alive together with Him. Without Christ, whosoever does not believe, believe is condemned already. But in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We were by nature children of wrath. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, he gave the right to become children of God. And we did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers. But in Christ... God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I'm just reading scriptures. Our poverty says we were enemies of God, but in Christ and the riches He gives us says, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But now, being rooted and grounded in love may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints not only just the love of God. It's not just your enemies and now you have the love of God, but no, to comprehend with all of the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ. We were hopeless and helpless, but Christ made a way back to the Father. We owed a debt because the wages of our sin is death. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our, our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by His wounds we are healed. Scripture says, In Him we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us.
How can we hear about a grace like this and not be moved? Matthew 13, Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. How can you know the love and willing sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ and not realize that Jesus is the pearl of great price? He's worth everything. He's worth everything. As somebody who's taken their family all over the world and people say, man, you've made great sacrifices. I can't come up with one. There's not been one thing we've given up that he's not been worth. Ephesians 3.8, Paul says to me, Though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. I woke up today knowing I was going to be a miserable failure. It happens every time I get to preach. The challenge is not easy. Here, here's an infinite God. You take finite words in your finite brain and try to do this in 45 minutes. Best of luck. It's an exercise in futility to try to explain the vastness of Christ's riches or the depth of Christ's condescension or the riches we receive through Him. These things are unsearchable. They're unknowable. They're too great for anyone to comprehend, much less to find words to explain. I do know that for all eternity, those who are in Christ will see more and more of His great worth. And we will know more and more of the great wealth that we have been given in Christ. So, why are we so impressed with Jeff Bezos' money? Why do we focus so much of our affection? This is a hard thing, okay? I know you got to go to work. I know you got babies to feed. You're called to work. You're called to provide. These are good things. My question is, why is your affection so focused around temporal riches? when we have been given incorruptible riches in Christ. My point is this, guys. There's a lot more to Christ than you've never loved. There's so many things about the infinite God that you've never realized. And I call you to see Him for what He is, for what He has done, and I call you to love Him more. Your affections for Him should be stoked by these thoughts. And you should war against all kinds of distractions in your life that are fighting for your affections and for your attention. Um, 
Kyle mentioned that we were with an organization called Disciple the Nations. And our little tagline is, uh, we're gospel-compelled disciples serving in gospel-centered ministries for the glory of God. A lot of people don't know. They go, what, what's the gospel-compelled mean? I, I just go, oh, yep. let me tell you the gospel. Because it's compelling. It's compelling. It causes me to want to worship. I've been in a lot of churches and they say, oh, we're going to worship. That way you'll be ready to preach. Oh, listen, you got it backwards. Don't worship so I'll preach. I preach so that you'll sing. I preach so that you'll worship. So that you'll see him for who he is and you will give him honor because he deserves it in all of your life. The gospel compels us to worship, compels us to obey. It compels us to fight sin. It compels us to tell others. My question to you this morning is, do you believe it? Have you been made rich in Christ? If you're here today, and you're outside of Christ. You're understanding maybe you've heard a little bit about the poverty that we have before Him. You've heard our hopelessness and our helplessness. My encouragement to you today is to repent and believe because it was for your sake that He became poor. And if you're here today and you're in Christ, I always encourage you to repent and believe too. Because we've yet to honor him as we should. So let's get right. And then, I hate that they've stolen this phrase and you were only allowed to use it in December. Uh, but since it's December, I can use it. Collectively as a body, I just ask, come, let us adore him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these sweet people. God, I ask that you have your way here. That you call us to worship you. Call us to recognize your great riches and your great sacrifice. God, I'm so grateful for the benefit that we've been given through your sacrifice, through your son. I ask that you help us in Christ's name. Amen.